Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 26, produced by Jesus Centered Resources. And what, what, what is that, you say? What is this Jesus Centered Resources you speak of? Well, it's nothing yet. <laughs> As uh, many of you know, who listen to the podcast for a long time. At the end of June, start of July, my long tenure at group publishing came to an end because of that um, villain, the pandemic. So group had to lay off a lot of people uh, because of the revenue hit from the pandemic, and I was one of them. Um, so I am uh, living in the great in-between right now and exploring some new options. Uh, hope to update you more on all of that um, as I learn more, but I've got some good things cooking right now, so I'll let you know as soon as I, I find out something. Um, and meanwhile, I'm also trying to build up my website and uh, a new a new site that I've uh, just uh, been working on recently called pursuingjesus.net. Once again, that's pursuingjesus.net. And that's going to be a site where um, all of the things that I produce or resources that I come up with or uh, services that I'm thinking of starting, all of it's going to be collected there. So still working on that. I'm learning from the ground up how to build a website. <laughs> um, and uh, I've, I've uh, dabbled in this in the past, but those of you who are listening who have built a website, you know that it's a steep learning curve. It's a lot of trial and error. Things don't always work the way they're supposed to when you're building a website. So I'm still learning. And um, for, for the time being, all of that I'm putting under the umbrella of this Jesus-centered resources because I didn't know what else to call it. So, so that's where this podcast is emanating from my house. <laughs> so um, if you're new to the podcast, uh, again, I'm Rick. I'm uh, an author of about 40 books and curriculums. Now, and the latest uh, from last year was a book called The God Who Fights For You. Uh, that's a book about uh, one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples, and in this case, specifically to Peter, uh, right after the Last Supper, when Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, uh, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail and that when you return, you would strengthen your brothers. It's just a short little interlude, a short little interchange between Jesus and Peter, but oh my gosh, there's so much packed into what Jesus is saying to him. So much so that a person like me can write a whole book about that one little interchange. That's what the God who fights for you is about. It's about um, when we're caught up in circumstances that we are desperately wish had never happened and we're trying to get out of as soon as possible. Um, and you can have a continuum of those kinds of circumstances from a level one in that, uh, in that arena to a level 10. And what, what happens? What is, what is Jesus doing in that, not just awkward in between, but painful in between. What is he doing during that time? What are his intentions? Why does he tell Peter that Satan has demanded to sift him like wheat and that I've, I, Jesus says, have given him my tacit permission to do that, Peter? Why does Jesus do that? Well, uh, we know that Jesus does nothing outside of a passionate love for us. So I take that little interchange and I blow it out. I expand it into all of our life and try to pursue what Jesus is doing in the deepest parts of our soul to make ugly things beautiful. Well, that's the God who fights for you. And uh, those of you who listen to the podcast regularly know also that I finished earlier this year my first ever daily devotional. And it will be my last ever daily devotional, I think. Uh, it took uh, more than two years to develop and write. Um, it was uh, the largest, baddest, steepest climb of my writing life. And I absolutely love, I absolutely love 
what came out of that process. Um, my wife uh, is reading the devotional every day because, you know, she has an in. <laughs> so I gave, I'm giving her um, printing out for her month by month, the, the, each set of devotions, and she's reading it. And I have to say, she's like many spouses. She's, she is the most critical of all of my work. She's uh, incredibly supportive of what I do, but she's also critical of it because she cares about what I do. And uh, I would say that this is her favorite thing that I've ever written. Um, almost every day she tells me that she just loves what she's reading. So for me, I can die happy now. <laughs> so that's called the Jesus Center Daily. Um, and if you want to pre-order your copy, you can go to Amazon and pre-order it right now. It comes out October 6th. Uh, if you go to Amazon and take a look at it, um, you'll see what an incredibly beautiful cover my friend and longtime collaborator, Jeff Storm, created for that daily devotional. I absolutely love it. So if you're interested in, in getting a copy of that and want to make sure you, you get one as soon as it comes out, you can pre-order it now. We're also, uh, for this crowd, the, those that listen to this podcast, we have a Facebook community called The Pigs. Um, it refers to a... Uh, a story that I talk about in uh, The Jesus-Centered Life, a book I wrote about four years ago, and uh, really the book that launched this podcast. Um, there's a story in there about my friend, Bob Krulish, whose daughter was a waitress at the French Laundry, one of the top restaurants in the world. And he told me one day that his daughter had won the top award for customer service people at the French Laundry. And I thought, oh my gosh, that must be incredible because this, this place, um, it's not only one of the, the best restaurants in the world, it's also, not surprisingly, one of the most expensive. And the, the wait staff make six-figure incomes at this place. So you have to be really good to work at the French Laundry. And his daughter had won the top award. And I said, oh my gosh, what did she get? And my, my friend Bob said she got a t-shirt. <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> what? <clears throat> he said the t-shirt um, had, a, had a slogan on it. It said, be the pig. I said, I still don't get it, Bob. And Bob said, well, if you think about breakfast, a chicken gives up something for the breakfast, an egg, but the pig gives everything. So be the pig means that his daughter was recognized as giving, giving her all. She was all in as a waitress at the French Laundry. I just loved that story. So uh, I think that's what it means to be captured by the heart of Jesus and so drawn to him that you would die for him, not because you're, you're the most courageous, heroic person on the block, but just because you can't imagine being apart from him. You, you're so captured by his heart. When you go all in with Jesus, it's because he's romanced you into that, not because it comes from the great... Uh, the great capital should in the sky. It, it, when we go all in with Jesus, it's because we've been captured by his heart. So the pigs page is a private Facebook group for those who listen to this podcast. I'll put a link to, uh, to the pigs page on this podcast episode page. So if you'd like to join that, that crowd, all you have to do is ask and uh, ask to be invited in. And I will press the button that says yes. So but you first have to ask. So I will put the link to the pigs page on this episode page. And this again is season five, episode 26. You just need to go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and you'll, uh, you'll, you'll find the link to this page. So um, if you want to join that group, please do. Uh, and that group will get uh, a sneak peek of the Jesus center daily in the next month or so. Uh, I will, we'll, we're figuring out right now what kind of thing, we can give to you folks who are, um, you know, the, 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 the core of those who are on board with this whole lifestyle of living your life in a close orbit around Jesus. I want you guys to have the first, the first eyeballs on the Jesus Center Daily. So we're figuring that out right now, and I'll let you know soon. Meanwhile, my friend Jeff White, he, he uh, created this work of art called Eyewitness. It's a it's essentially an adult story Bible. That's probably the best way to describe it. Uh, Jeff wrote a best-selling story Bible for children, and then he had the idea of creating a story Bible that's really for adults, meaning 
taking some of these uh, Bible stories that you'll never hear in Sunday school and giving them their due. And it's paired with this incredible art. I mean, this book is absolutely amazing. Um, so it's coming out in September, Eyewitnesses. And I'm going to have Jeff on the podcast sometime in this next month to, uh, to have him uh, explore with me some of the raw edges of these stories in the Bible that he has in Eyewitness. So you'll hear more about Eyewitness soon. And you can also get a link to uh, its, its website uh, if you go to Season 5, Episode 26 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Com. Um, I, click on the link for eyewitness and you can get a, a sneak peek at what that's all about. You can get a little teaser. So uh, we'll talk more about that in August, but um, we're four episodes into a new series I'm calling In His Image. I was just captured by this statement in Genesis where God creates man and woman in his image. And this is one of those mud puddles. A mud puddle is uh, anything in scripture that we think we already know, so we jump over it, or is so ununderstandable, so difficult to really conceive of, so hard to actually believe that we jump over it. So adults, when they come up to a mud puddle after a good, good hard rain, they always sidestep or jump over the mud puddle. But little children, you know, the, the, the pirates among them will jump right into that mud puddle and, and uh, you know, wallow around in it for a while. And so Jesus invites us to be little children. So let's wallow around in some mud puddles. And that this is one of them. God creates man and woman in his image. And he makes a big deal about in his image. Now, what does that mean? What do, does it mean that all of us um, look exactly like God? Well, we don't know that, but I, I, it obviously implies something much deeper than that, that to be created in God's image means to look like his essence, to have his essence in us. So if that's true, and we explore more about what makes Jesus Jesus, what, may, what is the essence of Jesus, um, how, then, then start to embrace how that shows up in who we are. Um, really, to follow Jesus is to give permission for the spirit of Jesus in us to exercise his arms and legs in us, <laughs> to live out his essence in us. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to, to invite and propel and participate with Jesus as he lives out who he is through us. Um, and, for, and, and in every case, it's a unique expression of who he is in us. When Jesus is um, full throttle in our lives, um, he does not uh, shave down the edges of our identity, what makes us distinct. He actually sharpens the edges of our identity. He makes us distinctly more and more who we are as we follow more closely. So in this series, in his image today, we're going to focus on... Um, uh, speaking of edge, <laughs> something a little edgy. We're going to explore Jesus's relationship with fairness and justice. I'm calling this fairness versus justice. So let's jump into this. Jesus said a lot of hard things, things that sound, well, actually impossible. <laughs> so, you know, he said things like, uh, uh, if you had even a mustard seed of faith, you could say to that mountain, move, and it would move. Uh, that wouldn't be impossible for you. Or he said, uh, you've seen all the things that I've done. Well, you're going to do even greater things than I've done. Uh, these are things that just sound like, what? Talk about mud puddles. We, we don't even hear them. We, uh, these phrases sound like Charlie Brown's teacher to us. He, Jesus is talking, he's talking, he's talking. He, if you only had a mustard feed of faith, blah, 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 blah. Because moving a mountain from one place to another just seems like, practically ridiculous to us. So we blow right past it. So Jesus is always saying these impossible things. And none of them, I think, are harder than this one. Now, the one I just mentioned seems like a physical impossibility. But think about the emotional, spiritual, psychological impossibility of this. This is from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. Uh, this is during this stretch that we call the Beatitudes, 
where Jesus is sort of launching his ministry. He's standing on this hillside. He's doing something that he really never does again, at least that we have record of, where he's just standing on this side of this hill and he's just blorping out just this mountain, this cascading waterfall of truth on people. I think he's doing this because he's trying to upend and deconstruct and disorient people around what they think is true. And he's trying to introduce them to what is true in the kingdom of God. So he's just giving them this like shock and awe of <clears throat> all the things they thought were true, but really aren't. And here's um, a little grenade that he throws out to them. He says in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So there he starts out. He's saying, look, you've, you've heard this your whole life. And I know that this is the value system you live under. And I know you, you think that this is what is right to do, to love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But let me throw a little grenade your way. And here's what he says. But I say, love your enemies, exclamation point. Pray for those who persecute you, exclamation point. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. Um, I, th I think it's good for us to slow down here. We're going to take a deep dive into this, into these three or four sentences that Jesus speaks to the people on the hillside. But the first question we have to ask is, what does this phrase, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven, what does that phrase really mean? So he says, you've heard it said before that you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, in the kingdom of God, we love our enemies and we pray for the people who persecute you. When that happens, if you do this in that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. What does in that way mean? It means that if we act this way, if we uh, begin to actually love our enemies and pray for the people that persecute us. Both those things, by the way, it's easier to say about an enemy, oh, I'll pray for them. But Jesus adds this preface first, love them. He's not just saying tolerate them and pray in secret for them where it doesn't cost you anything. He's saying love always costs, so do something costly that is for your the, the benefit of your enemy. It is actually loving them. Now, that doesn't mean simply just being nice to them. Um, but we have uh, sort of bastardized what love really means, and we've turned it into being nice to people. But love always has at its heart the other's best good. And sometimes the other's best good is a kind and tender thing. And sometimes the other's best good is a hard thing. Um, it can mean either way. So he's saying, though, that whatever you do, if, you, if you're going to reflect the family of God, <clears throat> the culture of the kingdom of God, then you will love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because when you do in that way, you'll be acting like true children of your father in heaven. That means you'll be acting like kids who've grown up with a father who's really infected them with his essence, with the things he does and doesn't do, with his value system, things he cares about and doesn't. We have a, a girl in our, uh, in our a group for young adults uh, that meets every Tuesday night um, now in our backyard, socially distanced and masked up. Uh, we've had to transition twice with our group, once on Zoom for three months and now into our backyard where they sit in hula hoops that are six feet apart. And uh, uh, they, they sit in little clumps of four, each clump with each person six feet apart so that we can do our thing. We do something highly interactive and experiential, and we're now doing it in our backyard. And one of the longtime members of that group um, comes from a family that has extremely strong political views. And uh, they're so strong that they've, uh, they've clearly infected her and her worldview. Well, in our group, we talk about all kinds of things. And those extreme beliefs have often been challenged in our group, not because we're uh, focusing on uh, political 
political kinds of issues, they just come up as a natural part of our conversation. All we do in that group is pursue the heart of Jesus. But of course, when you pursue the heart of Jesus, uh, things that, that look political come up in that context. And because it's a highly relational, highly conversational group, um, people's belief systems that they have carried forward from their families come out. And it's really a kind of a beautiful thing to watch because it's a very, very safe environment for these 20, 25 kids. <clears throat> and they feel comfortable sharing what they would not feel comfortable sharing, I think, in their everyday life because of what might happen if they shared it. So this, this, per, this uh, gal in particular, um, it's clear to see the influence of her family's extreme beliefs, but she is wrestling those out in the context of a community of people who love Jesus, and she loves Jesus, and you can see her chewing and, and wrestling with these things, and, uh, and I've talked to others in the group who are like, uh, you know, wishing that they could uh, change her point of view, and, and I've always said, well, um, in that kind of uh, change or transformation. Uh, it happens in these tiny little baby steps because the influence of your family is huge. The way they think, the, what, they, what they say is good and not good, what they say is right and not right. The essence of your family has a huge infectious, infectious uh, influence in your life. So when Jesus says, in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven, he's saying, uh, when you uh, have the kind of intimate relationship with your father in heaven that transfers his essence to you, where his thoughts and his, his standards and what he thinks is right and good become those same things in you, um, that's when you'll show that you're true children. Um, how, does a, how does a son or daughter prove that they are uh, the son or daughter of a particular person? Well, they might look like them, but the easier way is to, is to notice how they act like them. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And then he follows that up with for, you know, here, here, here's a transitional word. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So here he's saying, how does he live this out? How does God himself live this out? Well, um, he's not uh, putting sunlight on the good people and a rainstorm on all the evil people like a wouldn't that be a funny way to live that, that'd be a quick way to understand whether you're in or you're out isn't it whether the sun's on you or not or whether a cloud literally follows you along through your day and just rains on you so he says you know god himself we don't often think about this but he gives a life-giving sunlight to both the evil and the good and he gives life-giving rain to the people who are just and the people who are unjust he does not apportion it out according to your goodness or badness. That's how God loves his, uh, loves his enemies, not just his neighbors. So um, that this idea that this impossible character value of loving your enemies and praying for the people that persecute us, well, that is reflected in Jesus. Is this, is this fair or is it just? When Jesus says this about the character of God and the kingdom of God, is he talking about fairness or is he talking about justice when he says this? There are two different things, even though sometimes people overlap them. Let's, uh, uh, let's, let's try a little poll here. Um, <clears throat> you're on your honor system here, wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're driving, you can do this too, because you only need one hand to vote, right? So keep the other hand on your steering wheel. But I want you to think about this question and then literally raise your hand um, to vote one way or another. So here's the question. Would you rather that Jesus be fair or that Jesus be just? Which would you rather that was a priority to Jesus? Fairness or justice? Which one of those? Fairness or justice? So in just a second, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And so be prepared to vote. So. If you would rather that Jesus be primarily fair, raise your hand. I see that hand, even though I don't. Okay, you can put that hand down. 
Now, raise your hand if you would rather that Jesus be just. Raise, raise that hand if you would rather that he be just. Now, I did this with a group of people the other day. And in that group, two-thirds of the group raised their hand for just and one-third raised their hand for fair. And then as soon as everyone voted, what I heard was, I don't know, I might want to change my vote. Because <laughs> it's a tough way to vote, isn't it? Those pitting those two things against each other is not easy. What makes fairness better than justice, for instance? Why, why would someone vote for fairness over justice? Well, <clears throat> let's talk a, a little bit about what, what fairness might offer us. Um, I, we, I think one way you could think about it is it's nice to be fair, to be treated fairly. It's an incentive actually to be a good person because if you're going to be treated fairly, then think about this, you might have actually more pressure on you to be a good person because if you're gonna be treated fairly and you're a bad person, that's a bad thing. You're gonna get a, a tough consequence. So it's kind of nice because it's clear cut, right? If you think about fairness, well, you get what you pay for then, right? And whatever judgment you get will be judged by your actions. So, um, so kind of it puts the ball in your court. If, if you're going to be treated well, you're in charge of being treated well because you're going to be treated fairly. Another, another aspect of fairness that uh, maybe is, you know, doesn't come immediately to mind, but think about this. Fairness keeps in mind that there are two parties involved because fairness by its very nature is a comparison between two things. If I treat one person this way, I must treat another person exactly the same way in order to be fair. And so fairness in a way um, acknowledges the relational component of right and wrong, right? And justice may not. Justice can be meted out individually. But fairness always involves community, always involves a group of people. So at its heart, fairness is relational. Uh, so are you going to give um, equal opportunity? That's implied by fairness as well. So if you, th if you think about uh, all of the opportunities available to our entire population. Let's take the United States population. Um, fairness is actually a good thing if we're talking about making sure that people have equal opportunities for things. My daughter, Emma, is right now looking into colleges because she's entering her senior year of high school. And she is, um, at her dad's request, um, exploring lots of scholarship options right now. So she's and there are lots of them. Uh, so she's exploring which ones to apply for and which ones not. And she's often asking me to help her determine whether she should apply for one or not. And a lot of them, uh, she just doesn't qualify for because many scholarships are trying to proactively, intentionally bring a level of fairness into the scholarship application process. So my, my daughter is not from a minority group and my daughter is not from a, a lower income group. And because of that, some of these scholarships that look pretty good, she, she can't apply for. Well, is that fair? It is fair in the sense that these institutions and these scholarship granting organizations are trying to offer a fair playing field for those who've had less opportunity in life. They're trying to equalize their opportunity. Um, that's a good thing. You, you want people who are underprivileged and marginalized to get some help um, because those that are overprivileged and not marginalized have already had some help. <laughs> uh, so so it's, it's an attempt to bring fairness into that equation. And, and we generally see that as a good thing. Um, fairness also uh, promises you at the end of that process that you get what you want, right? So <clears throat> if you're treated fairly, then you're going to get what all of us really want, which is to be treated fairly. And uh, we also uh, avoid um, some people having more or some people having less than anyone else. Everyone gets the same thing in a fairness world. You know, um, this whole idea of everyone getting the same thing, 
is actually a huge divisive thing in our culture right now. Before the pandemic ever hit, there was a lot of um, divisive conversation and protesting going on around the 1% in the world, that, that the 1% of people, of, of uh, fabulously wealthy people in the world, um, control a lot of wealth, and that there is a lot of political talk about that's not fair. We need to set up systems that take some of the excess that rich people have and spread that out to poor people who don't have nearly, not even a micron of what those wealthy people have. That uh, there has been a lot of talk about this and it's been a divisive conversation in, in our culture because uh, in the name of fairness, some people feel like their rights are being, or their rights would be violated or they just fundamentally disagree with that kind of system. So is it fair? And if it is fair, why, do, why doesn't everyone agree with it? Is it equitable? And if it's equitable, why doesn't everyone agree with it? So it leaves us with dissonance when we try to make a case that fairness is Jesus's pri priority or that fairness is a better thing than justice. But let's take the other side of the coin too. Let's argue for a minute about justice. Now, is justice better than fairness? Let's explore it. So justice, in a way, accounts for variables. If you think about the difference between justice and, and fairness, justice promises to make right what is wrong. And making right what is wrong may not include making sure everyone gets the same treatment. To make right what's wrong, you have to sometimes favor one over the other in order to bring rightness into the equation. So um, fairness in a sense is, is hypothetical um, because the idea that fairness, uh, an equal distribution of opportunity and equity across all people, it's kind of a hypothetical um, dream in a way. It reminds me of, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but my least favorite song of all time is John Lennon's Imagine. I'm sorry for stepping on the toes of those who love that song, but that is also a hypothetical song uh, where John Lennon imagines what a world would be like where there's no religion, there's no rich and poor, there's no you're in, you're out, everyone is the same. And we don't need a religion because all we need is for everyone to be good to each other. If we were all just good to each other and loved each other, then everything would be fine. The reason I hate that song so much is that it's a, a childish song. It does not recognize reality. Uh, people left to their own devices don't naturally act in, in goodness toward one another. They do and they don't. <laughs> but left to our own devices, which has happened many times, we see that uh, uh, people do not naturally sacrifice themselves for each other. They need transformation. Um, they need the, the calling of a higher authority in their life to be drawn to that. So fairness is hypothetical in the same way that if, <clears throat> if we just didn't have any of these structures of authority in our culture, we'd all just be good to each other. Um, I think th they're, they're both childish thoughts. So in a way, one aspect of fairness um, is kind of mythical. It's not really possible to uh, redistrib redistribute opportunity and equity to everyone in such a way that it's fair. But let's go back to justice for a second. Um, justice is something that God can fulfill. Uh, uh, justice in this sense is not a hypothetical. It can be done. Because justice can account for variables and adjust itself, and God is adjustable, and he has been um, meeting out justice um, in the entire human history. He's been trying to make disparities. Um, he's try been trying to correct disparities and bring, um, uh, bring up those who are down, and in, in another way, bring down those who are up, um, all of that in the name of justice. He adjusts to circumstances. And uh, we'll get in just a second to how he's adjusting to circumstances and why he is. But let's continue with justice for just a second. If we think about 
um, at the core of justice, I think the question at the core of it is what is right? What is right? And when we say what is right, we're implying that there is an outside determiner of right and wrong, not a uh, individual determiner of what is right and wrong. But when we say that justice is about uh, making sure what is right happens, we are also implying whether we know it or not, that there is a greater outside authority who is determining what right and wrong is. You can't have um, justice uh, ensuring rightness without a standard set by an outside greater authority. So there are also, uh, if you think about that, think about how that there are strings attached to fairness. There, the strings are always attached to fairness because you're always trying to make everything the same. So the, the strings attached to fairness may be, um, well, you, you make a little more money than your neighbor. So we're going to pro proactively take away some of that money that you've earned and we're going to give it to your neighbor. Now think of all the strings that are attached to that, the resentments that can build up if that were the case. Uh, so uh, justice has an authority that is determining what's right. And uh, I, I heard somebody the other day when we were talking about this, uh, talking about fairness and justice, he said, uh, it's, just think about this for a second. This really struck me. I'm going to have to continue to chew on this. He said, it's not just to be fair, but it is fair to be just. It's not just to be fair, meaning making everything the same, but it is fair to be just because the essence of fairness means to bring what is right, to, to restore what is right. So there's a little exploration. I don't know which way you voted, obviously, but there's some more things to think about relative to fairness and justice. So, and you can think about how this is impacting our culture right now. Fairness and justice are like huge issues in our culture right now. Just here's a few things to think about. Is it fair to ask everyone to wear a mask and socially distance? And, and even in, in my town, Denver, the governor's just decreed that bars cannot serve alcohol past 10 o'clock, at least for the next month. Well, that's caused a lot of consternation because these bars and restaurants have already gone through so much to try to get back open again. And now they, they have a new blow that they can't stay open past 10 because uh, the governor and those that are advising him have said that there's evidence that the spread of the COVID-19 virus um, often happens later at night in enclosed spaces like bars and restaurants where people have been drinking for a while and they lose their sense of uh, propriety as they, as they relate to each other. And so they're proposing a month long ban that after 10 o'clock you can't serve alcohol. Is that fair? Or is it, is it fair to ban church gatherings larger than 50? Is that fair? Does that transgress our somehow our religious rights? Um, there, I know that there's some people who believe that that's an impingement on our constitutional rights. I think uh, I'll just uh, show you my cards here. I think that's just a ridiculous argument. Um, you, you know, our, our uh, constitutional right to gather is not uh, enforceable when gathering means putting everyone around you at risk of death. <laughs> it's just smart to use your mind and recognize that God has given us a mind and he wants us to think with it. You know, it smacks to me a, a little bit of Phariseeism um, and the, the very thing that Jesus went after so often because the religious leaders of his time would make rules out of things that were based in religious rules, but then were not applied in a just way. So often, you know, the Pharisees um, <clears throat> would complain when Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. And Jesus' pushback was, well, if you had one of your livestock fall down a well on the Sabbath, you would for sure go save that livestock. And yet you don't want me to free this man on the Sabbath. Uh, that's wrong. Um, so Jesus there is talking about justice, not fairness. And, <clears throat> and so when I hear people that say that, uh, that banning church gatherings larger than 50 
is a, deny, a denial of our religious rights, I, I think uh, that's Phariseeism. That's Phariseeism because you have taken something and made it a, a hard and fast rule instead of being just. And justice demands that we care for our neighbor. And if we are endangering our neighbor instead so that we can follow what we say is our hard and fast rule, how is that emanating from love? It's not. So, but what I just said, maybe many of you listening right now would disagree with heartily. I get that. I've had conversations with some of you. Um, what I'm saying though, is that at the heart of that conversation is fairness and justice. And uh, that conversation, even before the pandemic, was this kind of conversation, what is fair, what is just, was dividing our country already. Um, there, are, there are so many examples, things like uh, uh, sports in the fall. What about season ticket holders who are not going to be able to use their season tickets and may want to go to a game where only you know, one-fifth of the normal people that come to a game can go, and they don't get picked in the lottery to go? Is that fair? Is it just? Is it fair to march for and support and protest on behalf of Black Lives Matter? Or is the All Lives Matter movement more fair? Well, of course, that is a very uh, divisive conversation about what is fair and just. And uh, just to reveal my cards as well, again, the Black Lives Matter movement does not, uh, does not intend to say that other lives don't matter. It's intending to say Black Lives Matter too. And they're trying to make a point that in this culture, very often in our history, black lives have not mattered as much as other lives. The, the, the evidence is just all around us. So the Black Lives Matter movement is a movement toward bringing justice to that injustice. And yet when you hear somebody who is well-meaning and has, and has thought, it, thought it through and has uh, well considered the, the arguments on either side, and they are trying to say that all lives matter, they're usually trying to say that in a way that tries to make a case for fairness. But is fairness the highest good in this situation? Is fairness the highest good in this situation? That's the thing we have to uh, consider. So is it, let's, let's do another one here. Is it fair that my wife has a chronic immune deficiency that has led to a lung disease and has forced her to quarantine for five months now? And is it fair that my kids and me have had to take extraordinary precautions because of that? And is it fair that we visit those precautions on everyone who visits our house and the 20, 25 young people that come to our house every week, they have to do things that they never do in the rest of their life. Um, We're doing it not only for my wife, but because it's the right thing to do. So, um, so uh, is that fair? Is it just? How do we know what is fair and just? So these are questions that um, uh, are more prevalent in our lives than we maybe even realize. So I'd like for us to go back to our original proclamation from Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 through 45. I'm going to read it again. And here's what I want to do with this. Um, based on that and other things that we know about Jesus, we're, gonna, uh, we're going to filter um, three ways uh, the heart of Jesus. The first way is we'll, we'll try to prove that Jesus's priority really is fairness. And then secondly, we'll try to prove that Jesus's priority is really justice. And then the third way is we'll try to prove that Jesus's priority is neither of those. So here's the scripture passage again. It's from Matthew 5, 43 to 45. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, exclamation point. Pray for those who persecute you, exclamation point. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. All right. So let's, let's tackle this first one first. It, uh, let's prove that Jesus's priority, um, that his heart is defined by fairness. Let's talk about this for just a second. So 
fairness, as we mentioned before, is enacted relationally. It takes into account the, the relationships, the community that we're a part of. Um, and to enact fairness, you have to lift up some and pull down others. And isn't that what Jesus so often did? Isn't that what he was doing with the Pharisees? He was trying to pull down the Pharisees who had assumed positions of power and influence and control over the marginalized people that they led. Wasn't it right that Jesus pull them down? And isn't it right that he lift up those people who are so marginalized, either they have a physical problem that needs healing or like the Canaanite woman who uh, asks him to heal his daughter. And he says, I've come for the children of Israel, not for dogs like you. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table. Um, and he exults in her faith and says, your daughter's healed. Isn't that Jesus trying to pull up someone who has been typically um, abused and treated poorly and marginalized out of uh, society so much so that they're not even worthy to, to ask for healing for their daughter. Um, isn't that fair of Jesus to lift up some and to pull down others? Isn't that what characterized the way that he interacted with people? Um, isn't fairness also about legitimate rules and standards that we all have to live by? Um, that no one is really preferenced, uh, I mean, pr preferred, or, or given um, an extra leg up in life because that's not fair. And that, that means that the legitimate rules and standards that we set up in our culture don't have to be followed by everybody. Is it, is it fair that some people would be allowed to speed 20 miles, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit while others have to maintain their, that speed limit and, or else they get a ticket? Is that, would that be fair? No, we would protest if that was so, because that's a preferential treatment for someone. So isn't Jesus also embracing of that aspect of fairness that he is not um, trying, uh, trying to promote preferential treatment for people because that would be unjust in the, in the end? Is, it, is fairness trying to uphold something about justice in a way? That, it, that it's unjust to give some greater advantage to, and, and that fairness then gives us a standard of same treatment that, that really uh, obliterates this underlying and uh, evil core of preferential treatment for some. Isn't that what fairness is trying to do? You can make a case that Jesus, of course, was trying to lift up some and pull down others so often. So there's the case for fairness as a priority, that, Jesus, that for Jesus, fairness was a priority. What about justice being his priority? What's the case there? Well, um, uh, Jesus, Jesus in his justice um, adjusts to our situation, um, abides by the rules and standards, and yet um, uses those rules and standards to, to prefer some over others in order that they might be loved. So if you think about uh, justice being satisfied with Jesus on the cross, we had a just punishment for our betrayal and that just punishment was death. Um, permanent death was held off through the Old Testament through a system of sacrifices. Jesus came to fulfill that system by offering himself as the final sacrifice, that no more sacrifice would be needed because once he made, gave his life for ours, the payment for that betrayal would be paid forever. So in this act of love and grace, he satisfies justice. So even in his, uh, death and cruci his crucifixion and death, we can point to the priority Jesus had and the Trinity had in fulfilling justice, that they were not going to steal our uh, redemption in an illegal way. They were going to fulfill the tenets of the law. Um, they were not going to make an end run around what was right. They were going to fulfill what was right in order to give us um, the, the, the grace that we so desperately need. And so the, 
that the the case for justice being Jesus' priority is clearly comes from this attention to what is just in the way that he sacrificed himself for us. So then let's take the third one. What if neither one of these is his priority? What if neither one of these is his priority? What's the case we would make for that? I think there's a compelling case for that. Think about um, it, if we say fairness or justice is, uh, is what's fueling Jesus's relationship with us and the way he responds to us and what he, and his mission in our lives, um, then what we've automatically cut out from that is what I think is his primary motivator that we know from scripture and from his behavior. And that is love. Uh, uh, later on, um, Paul says that three things, as we've talked about last week, three things will last for eternity, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why is Paul saying that? Because everything emanates from love. Love is the primary motivation of God toward us. Thank God it is. I, I actually don't want his primary motivation to be fairness or justice because those things alone are not informed by his love. So um, that it, it, love can be both not fair and love is never unjust, but it can adjust itself under the umbrella of justice to bring fairness. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's starting to get confusing. The, the, the fact that Jesus is motivated primarily by love translates into grace and grace looks like it shouldn't be fair in fact at its very core grace isn't fair it's it's unmerited favor when you're unmerited that means by definition it's not fair and it may not be just <laughs> if it's unmerited favor is it really just doesn't justice require merit in order for it to be okay and yet grace chews through both of those. Grace and love uh, stand above fairness and justice. Here's another way of saying this. Fairness can be just, but justice can't be fair. Fairness can be just, but justice can't be fair. Justice can't be fair because it's motivated primarily by love. And love wants the best good for the other. So when uh, Jesus, who wants our best good, um, lives by justice, that means he will sometimes be unfair. He will lift up some. He will pull down others. He will encourage some. He will discourage others. He will promote some because that's the, their best good and he will drag back others because that's their best good. Uh, he is primarily motivated by whatever will bring our ugly into beauty. And whatever it takes to bring, to move ugly to beauty, he will do. And that means that he uh, may or may not look fair when he's doing it. The first part of that, fairness can be just. That's really true, isn't it? that being treated fairly can ultimately feel like justice too, that this is how it should have been all along. But justice can't be fair means it ha justice has to adjust to who I am, to my circumstances, and what my best good is. So if we had to say Jesus is, and we fill in the other side of that, what would we say? Jesus is what? In light of this conversation, here's a shot at this. Let's Let's just say, we'll, we'll say it a different way. Jesus came to love us. That is his mission. And he loved us by fulfilling justice and re-standardizing fairness. He loved us by filling, fulfilling justice and re-standardizing what fairness means. So in doing that, he offered love and grace to everyone, but he did it first, not illegally, <laughs> not unjustly. He fulfilled justice 
But then he re-standardized what fairness really is. It's not making everyone the same. It's loving everyone with an equal amount of passion. And that loving everyone with an equal amount of passion is going to look different in every person's life. And it needs to look different. The, this idea that everything must be fair is just flat out wrong. Um, because everything must be fair circumvents the artistry of Jesus in our lives, where he comes to uh, redeem what is dark and bring it into the light. To, to take us out of captivity into freedom means that he will operate differently in every person's life. If you remember at the, uh, at the very end of the Gospels, at the very end of the Gospel of John, as Jesus is heading towards his eventual ascension, and he has just met with his disciples on the beach after another long night of trying to fish and catching not nothing, he meets them on the beach after he tells them to cast their net over the starboard side of their boat, and they get a huge catch, and they have a nice fish breakfast. And this is the moment when, after breakfast, Jesus has a little aside with Peter and says, three times, Peter, do you love me? And after that interchange, where Jesus is surfacing Peter's betrayal and his pain and his shame and restoring him um, into a place of intimate relationship with himself, um, they're walking along the beach talking, and the uh, disciple John, who wrote the gospel, is walking, uh, you know, six, seven, ten feet away. He's already socially distanced back then. And Peter looks back at John um, and, and it, as he's talking to Jesus, because Jesus is telling uh, Peter, hey, Peter, um, now that I've restored you, and uh, here, here's the deal, you're going to be leading the church, uh, you'll be the foundation of the church, and you are going to sacrifice your life in that process. You're, you're going to be crucified, um, just as you always wished you would. You always said you would die for me. Peter, it's going to happen. And so in the middle of that little conversation, Peter looks back. He sees John, and he looks back at Jesus and, said, and says, well, what's going to happen to John then? And Jesus says to Peter, that's none of your business. <laughs> I'm, I'm helping you write your story, and I'm helping write John's story. And they're two different stories. They don't have to be fair or equal. And they weren't. John is the only disciple who was not executed. He dies in prison on the island of Patmos. Every other disciple dies a martyr. But John doesn't. There's no fairness there. And there's not supposed to be. <laughs> what Jesus is trying to do is love each person to the full extent of what love means. And that means being treated differently. And that's only good when the heart of the one who's doing this is fully good. In any other iteration of this, it would be terrible. If we're saying that um, the heart of God loves, and that means that it supersedes fairness and justice sometimes, the only acceptable way to invite that into our lives is when we believe that the good heart of God is the one who's determining those variations and variables. Goodness must determine the variations or we're in trouble. So everything comes back to the goodness of the heart of Jesus. Either we're convinced of it and we trust it so that when we are treated unfairly because he's loving us, we trust that. In the end, it's the trust that we have for his good heart that is our ticket into intimacy with him. All right, gang, that's it for this week. Um, I want you to think about something as we close. What's something that feels unfair or unjust in your life right now? I mean, what's something that just is grinding away at you? What's, what's something that um, you haven't been able to get past, that it just doesn't feel right? I'd like you to just pause for a second as we close. Just ask Jesus silently, or if you're alone driving in a car, you can do it out loud. That's very powerful when you do it that way. Just ask Jesus this question. When you think about that injustice or that unfairness in your life right now, whatever popped into your head just now, ask Jesus this question. Jesus, what do you want me to do about this? Jesus, what do you want me to do about this? I'll just give a moment to pause here. See what he says to you.
all right? If something has come to you, a word or phrase, even a picture in your head, I really encourage you to write it down when you can or draw it if you got a picture of something to acknowledge what he has just said to you. Whatever you've just sensed when you asked him, what do you want me to do about this unfairness or injustice in my life? Um, uh, write down whatever sense you got from him and then ask him to help you live that out. In fact, I'm gonna do that for you right now as we close. Lord Jesus, whatever you just revealed to those who saw something or sensed something in your response, I'm just asking that you would give them the strength and courage and grit to live that out, whatever it is. We need your help. We're just sheep. We need you, shepherd, to help us. So please help us to live out whatever, whatever it is you've just told us to do. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Once again, if you want to explore links from this episode, go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You'll be looking for season five, episode 26. Look for those links there. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast produced at ricklawrence.com, believe it or not. You can subscribe to us on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.